Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, The Case of the Sicilian Fingerprint, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. And now, on with our show. In today's episode, we'll examine the case of perhaps the very first American casualty of the invasion of Sicily in World War II. Seaman First Class Paul Bernard Wilson was buried in the sand on the beach where he died, only to be lost in history since the day of his death on 10 July 1943. Could two long-forgotten fingerprints hold the clue to solving this case? A case file that had FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's original initials. Could Director Hoover's FBI laboratory assist us again, 70 years later, to bring home the missing sailor from Sicily? Well, let's find out. Paul Bernard Wilson was born on March 6, 1924, and was just 18 years old when he left his home in Inman, South Carolina, to enlist in the United States Navy Reserve on 10 December 1942. We don't know very much about Paul's family, but we do know that Paul was a relatively tall, skinny kid who stood 5 foot 11 inches tall and weighed only 137 pounds. He had light brown hair, and he attended high school. Paul completed his Navy basic training in an advanced training course in Bradford, Virginia, where he learned to steer the LCVP landing craft, or Higgins boats, in use by the American military for amphibious landings on hostile shores. Immediately after his training, Paul was promoted to seaman first class and assigned to the USS Elizabeth C. Stanton, a transport ship docked at the Norfolk Naval Base on 1 May 1943. Within two months, seaman first class Wilson would see war up close and personal. In the early morning hours of 10 July 1943, Seaman First Class Wilson struggled to steer his Higgins boat in high winds and choppy seas toward the dark shoreline of Gela Beach on Sicily. The landing operation was codenamed Operation Husky, and it was opposed on the beaches by units of both the Italian and German armies. Seaman First Class Wilson was in the first wave of Big Red One Army troopers, who were storming the beach. Apparently, young Paul was eager and good at his job because he was the first boat to hit the beach. When the ramp of the Higgins boat went down to discharge the soldiers of the Army's famed 1st Division, the Germans and Italians defending the desolate, wind-blown stretch of Sicilian beach in the Gulf of Gela in the Mediterranean Sea blasted the attackers. Paul was struck multiple times in his chest and other body parts with machine gun fire, and he died without ever marrying his high school sweetheart from South Carolina. The army troopers dragged Paul up on the sand and laid him down in his final repose. There was nothing anyone could do to save him. His wounds were mortal. Later, probably after the wave of fighting left the beach area, 
One of his buddies from his own ship, the USS Elizabeth Stanton, who was probably also a boat driver, found Paul lying in the sand. His buddy took off Paul's dog tag so that he could show the ship's captain that Paul was really dead, and his buddy scooped out a hole in the beach sand and rolled Paul's body into a shallow grave. His buddy then pieced together a wooden cross from some very rough boards, probably from a supply box, and scrawled Paul's name on it, and he put the sand over Paul's grave, and he put the grave marker at the head. The combat photographer who was lingering far behind the lines snapped a picture of Paul's grave marker. The tide came in later that night, and the little wooden cross was swept away. Paul is lost to history just as sure as his cross. The only thing left was the photo. And almost 70 years later, something called the Internet. In August 2011, the citizen saw the photo of Paul's cross on the Internet, checked the official list of World War II missing, and wondered why, after 68 years, no one could find Paul Wilson, when there was obviously a photograph of a clearly marked grave. Why, pray tell, can't we just go over to Sicily, find X marks the spot, and dig young Paul up and bring him home, queried the citizen in his letter to the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC. It seemed like a legitimate question when, as a member of that unit in the Department of Defense, I was given the task of investigating Paul's case in November 2011. I pulled Paul's file from the records room at JPAC, and found that there had actually been an attempt to match him with a sailor that had been found buried on that same beach about six weeks after the battle. I ordered the file of unknown X21554 of the unknown sailor found on Gela Beach from the files at the National Archives in St. Louis, Missouri. And lo and behold, I found that the Army Graves Registration Service had obtained two fingerprints from the cadaver on the beach. Silly me, I thought this case was going to be a cinch to solve, a veritable slam dunk. I ordered more files from the archives and found that the military had actually attempted to match the cadaver's prints with Paul's fingerprints in 1943, and it was noted that the cadaver print was illegible. This was certainly understandable because being under a wet, sandy beach for six weeks is not conducive to keeping the loops and whirls of a fingerprint intact. I was ready to close the case, or at least suspend it, until I found what I thought was the proverbial smoking gun in Paul's file. Buried deep in one file was a simple, short memo with J. Edgar Hoover's initials. Yes, THE J. Edgar Hoover, founder and director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Hoover wrote that his agents had compared the cadaver print to a man named Rajnik, who lived in California, and found that the cadaver print and Rajnik's fingerprints did not match. I scratched my head, but there was nothing in the file as to why the FBI was trying to match a dead MIA with a person who was alive from California. But it was like a bomb going off in my feeble little mind. If the FBI could read the cadaver print in 1944, then why couldn't we find someone with all the whiz-bang technology of the 21st century that could try again to compare the cadaver's print 
of Paul's fingerprints. For months at JPAC, I worked on accomplishing just that. First, I tried to get the JPAC laboratory to compare Paul's dental chart with the dental chart of unknown X21554. The JPAC lab flatly refused to allow their odontologist to even look at the charts. And this was the second time within as many months that the JPAC lab had told me that I was out of my lane in requesting their assistance on dental comparisons. Of course, this should not have been unusual as the JPAC laboratory later referred to DNA as, quote, voodoo science, end quote, and stated that they would, quote, never ever use ground penetrating radar, end quote, as the basis of a field exhumation, despite the fact that every FBI field office in the United States was equipped with just such technology to help find buried bodies. Second, I ran Paul's recorded biometrics through my own custom design, Random Incident Statistical Correlation, or RISC system, and everything matched, except the age comparison, which was far outside the margin of error utilized in the RISC system. This was somewhat offset by the historical document in X22154's file that described the body as wearing a navy blue shirt. And in a beach full of army khaki-clad dead, this was a clue that pointed directly at only Paul and no other casualty. It wasn't easy, but I managed to convince my leadership command in the World War II Research and Investigations branch at JPAC to pony up the funds to send me to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. if, and only if, I could find the originals of both Paul's enlistment fingerprint records and the originals of the cadaver prints from that long-ago beach in Sicily. This was a huge task for any investigator. But I was convinced that it was doable and worthy of the effort to bring Paul home. Naturally, it wasn't easy. First, I called the FBI and played my I am an FBI Academy grad and need your help card. No problem there, they said. The FBI immediately pledged to arrange for the print analysis if I could find someone or something to analyze. And yes, they had to be the original fingerprints to give us any chance of matching them. Have you ever tried to take original documents out of the National Archives? <laughs> well, think the movie National Treasure and you'll have an idea of the degree of difficulty. For one thing, the Archives personnel do not do research. They only bring you the file when you come to them in St. Louis or in Maryland and let you do the research and look at the records. But first, you have to go to them. There was no way JPAC was going to fund two trips for me to find Seaman First Class Wilson. One of the board of directors at the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation hooked me up with a Navy commander who was temporarily assigned to St. Louis. Although I had never met the commander, I talked him into going to the archives for us and there picking up a high-quality computer scan of Paul's original fingerprints from his records. I then called one of the women, who I had also never met, who worked at the archives, and talked her into making a high-quality digital scan of the original prints if my new commander friend would come by in person with a disc and pay the normal fee to check out Paul's file. Yes, 
federal government charges other federal government agencies to use the archive. Unbelievable, but true. So, without even trying to get money to pay for it from JPAC, I just sent the Navy commander the cash from my own pocket, and he did as promised and mailed me the scan. In the file, the National Personnel Record Center person surprisingly found Paul's original dog tags that had been taken from him by his buddy on the sandy beach in Gela, Gela, Sicily. And they still had sand attached to the cord that hung around Paul's neck. Eureka, I thought. Paul Wilson was a third of the way home. Well, little did I know. Next, I tracked down the original of the cadaver print to the National Record Center in Suitland, Maryland. Oh, this was too easy, I thought, since Suitland is just a 10-minute drive from the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. Could it be possible that the FBI could bring their own equipment into the archives to make the scan of the original cadaver print and do the analysis on the spot? Yeah, the FBI said. They'd be happy to help. Wow, if only the FBI ran the JPAC lab. Such cooperation was unheard of at Camp Fubar as JPAC was known to those of us who worked there, fouled up beyond all recognition. But first, I had to clear all of that with the archives in Suitland and confirm, for sure, that the file there actually had the original of the cadaver print. They had emailed me copies of the print from unknown X21554, and they copies were just plain awful. I couldn't tell from the email prints if they were from originals or copies of copies of copies of copies down through the years. After a lot of discussion, the deputy chief at the records center not only gave me permission to show up with my FBI laboratory people, but also he personally went back and checked the file for me and confirmed that they had the original cadaver fingerprints taken on that desolate beach in Gela, Sicily. With all this cooperation, I was literally stunned. I called the people at the biometrics lab that the FBI had delegated to actually do the examination and made the arrangements to meet them at Suitland. <laughs> I thought, well, biometrics. That was another forbidden word at JPAC. Hmm. A 16-hour plane ride and a lot of Dramamine found me outside the National Record Center in Suitland, Maryland on a Tuesday morning. Just as I was about to enter the gate, I passed a cemetery on the left side of the road. There was a huge headstone facing the road that read, Wilson. I was sure it was a sign. I had no sooner arrived than my lab crew arrived as well. I found out that they had driven five hours from West Virginia that morning just for this assignment. And they were excited. They were beyond excited. It was like we were about to play a high school football game. We were all pumped and tingly with anticipation. Hard to believe, but true. The enthusiasm was such a shock from watching JPAC operate that I felt like we couldn't miss. Unfortunately, after four hours of analysis, I was back at Camp Fubar Hell. The FBI's lab's first impression on the comparison was, one, the pattern types of Seaman First Class Wilson and X21554 were a match. Two, the tip of one legible cadaver print from X21554 had the majority of good identification points, 
and the tip of Seaman First Class Wilson's fingerprint for that same digit was not present on his original fingerprint card. Three, a total of four identification points could be found on the print for X21554. Four, all four of these identification part points were a match for Seaman First Class Wilson. But five, in the bottom line, a minimum of eight identification points are necessary to declare a positive identification. Well, I confess, I used all the four-letter words I'd learned during my brief stint in the Navy, and a few from my own career in law enforcement. The two fingerprint examiners were crestfallen, and not even an awful Chinese lunch purchased at a nearby diner helped the move. The fingerprint experts promised to take the scans back to their office with the hope that more equipment and other examiners might find the other necessary identification points. So, I waited in a cold and rainy Washington hotel room for the next three days while the FBI and the biometrics laboratory worked hard on Paul's case. Then I got this email. The comparison examination cannot positively identify unknown X21554, the Seaman First Class Paul Bernard Wilson. The comparison examination cannot positively exclude Seaman First Class Paul Bernard Wilson as being X21554. The prints for unknown X21554 could be used for elimination purposes, however. They have been deemed unsuitable for identification purposes. So, I couldn't identify Paul as X21554, and I couldn't exclude him. It was like kissing your sister. It was nice while the fun lasted, but it was going nowhere. In other words, the biometric fingerprint comparison necessary to identify X21554 as Seaman First Class Paul Bernard Wilson was deemed to be inconclusive. As much as I professionally wanted to locate, recover, and identify Seaman First Class Wilson and return him home to his family, and as much as I personally wanted to completely circumvent the knuckleheads at the JPAC lab to obtain an identification, this case of the Sicilian fingerprints presented an ethical dilemma. In the legal world, there are two standards of proof. A preponderance of the evidence used in civil trials, which means that 51% of the evidence favors one position or the other, and beyond a reasonable doubt used in criminal trials, which means the evidence is conclusive. In my opinion, I had a preponderance of the evidence, but it was not beyond a reasonable doubt to justify a recommendation to JPAC for the disinterment of unknown X21554 for a full forensic analysis of the remains. Sorry, Paul. I tried. I really did. And a lot of other people really gave their best. Personally, I think Seaman First Class Paul Bernard Wilson is one of the 490 unknowns who are currently interred at the Sicily, Rome, American Military Cemetery in Natuno, Italy, with the inscription on the white marble cross above his head, Quote, Here rests in honored glory a comrade in arms, known but to God, and known maybe to me. And now, because you are listening to this podcast of No Home for Heroes, you know 
as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to listen free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday and we'll post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. Our next episode is titled, A Tarawa Who Done It? Learn how another of Tarawa's Marines and another of Tarawa's Marine heroes was lost for over 70 years, but how he finally made it home. You sure don't want to miss this one, if for no other reason that it has a happy ending that will renew your faith in mankind. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no hero, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them.